You know, Beck and I's conviction uh, is that this is not a stage. Uh, you are the choir. And, and so I'm so grateful for uh, instrumentalists and for, for Becca leading us in worship. Um, this isn't a performance when we sing, but, but we sing together as the congregation of God. And sometimes we know the songs and we belt them, and sometimes we don't, and we're in choir rehearsal and we're learning them. Uh, but uh, we might make a joyful noise to the Lord, and that's okay. Uh, but it's just so good to hear your voices uh, in, in worship. We're... It, we're uh, what are we, four weeks, five weeks now into this new sermon series uh, on John's gospel? And uh, I'm super excited to jump in with you this morning. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, if you'll pray with me, and let's just spend some time and ask God to, uh, to speak to us this morning. God, we come to you with all sorts of postures this day. Lord, we've, we've all shared the same week, but we've had different experiences. And so some of us come to you with the posture of joy, ready to celebrate and sing your praises. And some of us come to you this morning with a heaviness, Lord, a sorrow, an aching. God, some of us are, are in this place with ears open, ready to hear your word, and some of us, uh, Lord, we're having a hard time laying our distractions down. God, and yet you know every heartbeat in this room. So Lord, I just pray that you would um, fulfill and live into the promise that you made us, that this word that we are about to open is sharp. Lord, that you would pierce us. God, that you would change us. God, we ask in, in a world that six days a week is steering us in all different directions, Lord, that somehow in this one hour that you would guide us, that you would ground us, that as we say amen today and as we leave this place, we would once again have a firm foundation to follow you. So God, we, uh, we sit, I stand with hearts open, ready for what you would have. God, speak to us now. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, open up your Bibles if you, uh, if you have them with you to John's Gospel, chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we, we always have Bibles out in our gathering area. It looks kind of like a bookstore, but those Bibles are free. If you need one, if you need to take one, feel free to, to do so uh, at any time. But we're reading from John's Gospel, chapter 2. I would promise you, you've probably heard this one before. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. 
And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, today's sermon title is called Never Sought Coming. And I want to talk with us this morning about those moments of distraction when we fail to look up and as a result, we end up missing out on what everyone else in the room sees. You with me? I want to just give us some examples to get us thinking. Um, Take, for instance, a baseball game. When the foul ball comes flying into the crowd, and for whatever reason, it always aims for the one person who's not paying attention, doesn't it? Everyone else has their gloves out. They've been expecting, anticipating this moment for like three innings. The moment has finally arrived, but no, Sally, she's got to be staring at her cell phone. She has no idea what's going on. Baseball lands right in the popcorn bucket, and we all know that's the best case scenario. She never saw it coming. Or how about this? You ever seen like a dog or a child get so excited to go outside that they run right into the sliding glass door? Ever seen that before? Last Christmas, my two-year-old nephew actually did the opposite. Um, He thought the glass door was, was closed, so he went to pound on it, and instead of hitting glass, he hit air. And did a belly flop right onto my parents' deck. Never saw it coming. Last Sunday at youth group, uh, Misty, who is our communications director, she had cooked a meal for the students. And uh, we were outside right out here. The kids were out on the patio uh, eating dinner. And we were trying to get this kickball game off the ground. And one of the tables refused to come down the stairs and play. So with all my might, I threw the kickball as hard as I could in their direction in hopes of spurring them on. But as I released the kickball, it slipped from my hand, veered off directly in Misty's path. And you know those moments where everything just kind of slows down like, everyone was yelling at her, watch out, but Misty was so engaged in conversation with my wife that it hit her square in the face. I know, it was horrible. Especially the part when one of the students yelled, that wasn't me, that was your boss. (laughs) She never saw it coming. And the Bible's packed full of these moments. Probably in every book we could find one. Abraham and Sarah, the last thing they expected was a, a newborn son at their ripe old age. Goliath, he never anticipated a stone coming from David's sling to the temple. Pharaoh never saw the plagues approaching. Paul, he's killing Christians. The last thing he would have anticipated was Christ appearing in his path. And I share all that because this story of of Jesus turning water into wine, we've heard it a thousand times. Everyone loves the water into wine miracle for obvious reasons. But I want us to think about this moment from a different angle for the next 20 or so minutes because here's my premise. This miracle at Cana, It was a foreshadowing of something that no one saw coming. 
Remember, John's gospel was written for one specific reason. He said, I've written these things so that you might believe. That's what he tells us in John 20, 31. That's the purpose of this gospel, our belief. And with that purpose in mind, John calls this first miracle a sign. Look at this in verse 11 up on the screens here. This was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Which begs the question, why would you call a feat like that a sign? The other gospels, they use words like miracle or, or wonder to explain these sort of divine moments, but John calls them signs. If we pay close attention, it seems to me a, a sign tells us something significant is coming, doesn't it? A yield sign tells us that traffic is merging. A caution sign tells us that danger is ahead. A construction sign tells us there's workers present. A school sign tells us there's children at play. See, there is something significant, as R.C. Sproul once said, about every miracle of Christ. But what exactly is this sign pointing us to? We all know what a wedding looks like. Weddings, more than any other ritual in our culture, come with high, high expectations. Guests are to arrive with gifts in hand. That's expected. They're to dress in the attire according to the invitations. That's another one that's an expectation. And conversely, guests bring their own anticipations. We've grown accustomed to food and drink, music and dancing. But in first century Palestine, wedding weren't just a, an afternoon or an evening affair. They went on for a week. And every wedding came with the same kinds of expectations. And so to run out of wine or food at a wedding in our day, that's certainly an embarrassment. But in those days, that slip up wasn't just uncomfortable. It was a lifelong disaster. And I say that for two reasons. First, it wasn't like you could just walk down the street to the corner store and get some more. Wine didn't come by the bottle with a price tag on it. But second, and this is far more important, the society of the culture at this time was one of honor and shame. And so to run out of wine at your wedding, this pivotal moment in your life was not just humiliating, it was devastating to you. The stigma of that mishap would have stayed with that marriage for the rest of this young couple's life. Some scholars say that that kind of mistake would have been so egregious that the bride's family would have actually filed a lawsuit just to separate themselves from the shame of their son-in-law's mistake. So Jesus finds himself in the midst of a, a bridal disaster. And this isn't just any wedding. It seems as though the family knew this couple well. Mary is there. Jesus' disciples had come along. And so Mary comes to her son, and make no mistake, she's worried. Look at this in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This isn't just a here's 500 bucks, go find some more kind of moment. No, this is a full-blown catastrophe. And for whatever reason, Mary's caught up in it. And just so we know, here's the best part. She wants Jesus to do something about this. Here's how I know. Here's why I say that. Men, let me talk to you for a minute. When the wife comes to you and says, honey, take the trash out, what is your one and only response? Yeah, what would happen if, if you just sat on that announcement? See, there's an action implied here from Mary to Jesus. Jesus, the wine has run out. What are you going to do about it? 
And yet Christ's answer to his mother is a a complete head-scratcher. In fact, the Greek is somewhat difficult to translate here. It goes like this. Te amoi saikoi gunai. Te amoi saikoi gunai. If we were to translate that literally, it would be, woman, what to me and to you? You might put it in today's English. It would be something like, why is this my problem? What does this have to do with me? And it seems at the very least, this is a a terse statement of Jesus, a bit abrupt. Now, it's important to know that the the word woman in Jesus' day was a word of endearment and and respect, and it it didn't have the negative connotations that it has today. In fact, to be sure, Jesus used the same word with his mother as he hung on the cross. But even then, the words seem terse, don't they? Woman, what to you and to me? Jesus tells Mary, my hour hasn't come yet. Now, just so we're all on the same page, let me summarize real quick. Mary sees that the wine has run dry. She's concerned. She tells Jesus to do something about it. Jesus says, this isn't my problem. Why is Christ so reluctant to acquiesce the request? I mean, we all know by now how this ends, right? Jesus is certainly going to rectify this problem. In fact, by the time he's done, the, the chief steward, he, he gives it the, the best wine rating ever of a wedding in history. And yet it's almost as if Christ wants Mary to know, I'm going to do this miracle, but it's not what you think it is. My hour has not yet come. You see the disconnect. See, it seems to me with the best of intentions, in this moment of disaster, Mary doesn't get it. Jesus didn't come to solve a a wedding problem. He came to solve a sin problem. My hour is not yet here, Mom. She didn't see it coming. Fast forward to the end of John's gospel with me for a minute, and let's just see what Jesus meant by this hour, this time that had not yet come. Look at this in John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were with the, in, the, in the world, he loved them to the end. Christ is washing his disciples' feet in this moment, and it's his final act of love for them. He knows he's going to his death, and the scripture set this up as his hour. Look at this in John 17, 1. Just before Christ comes to endure the cross, he prays the exact same phrase to the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son might glorify you. See, it's, it's like that fan that's glued to their phone in the middle of a baseball game, right? Mary is so caught up in the here and now that she doesn't see it coming. And Jesus tells his mother, what does this moment have to do with me? See, this first miracle of Christ, it's not about making booze for a wedding party, contrary to popular opinion. It's about something far greater, far more significant than even Jesus' mother could have recognized. It was the first sign of things to come. December 26, 2004, a tsunami struck the shores of Sri Lanka seemingly out of nowhere. Within minutes, 40,000 lives were lost. Think about that, 40,000 lives, gone. It's a hard number to fathom. Thousands of homes were ripped off their foundations, pulled out into the ocean. The the earthquake had done this immeasurable damage to the land. But a few weeks after the crisis, survivors began to share their stories. And in hindsight, they all noticed something really strange, particularly eerie about that day. 
Just hours before the tsunami hit, eyewitnesses saw animals acting as if they knew something no one else knew. Elephants were trumpeting and running up for higher ground. Dogs refused to go outdoors on their morning walks. Hundreds of flamingos had abandoned the shorelines for the hillsides. Zoo animals rushed into their shelters and refused to come back out. One scientist explained it like this. Look at this up on the screens. Earthquakes bring vibrational changes on land and in water while storms cause electromagnetic changes in the atmosphere. Some animals have acute sense of hearing and smell that allows them to determine something coming towards them long before humans might know that something is there. But for the citizens of Sri Lanka, no one saw it coming. You picking up what I'm throwing down? It seems to me that the closer we pay attention to this miracle of Christ, the more we realize just what Jesus was doing in this moment. That sign pointed clear today to the the life, death, resurrection, and then glory of Jesus, but no one saw it. You know, it's no secret. Our lives right now are caught up in the here and now these days. We wake up and we tackle whatever the day throws at us, the crisis de jour, we, we listen to the passing headlines in the drive-by media, the latest and greatest, the, the urgent moment in time. And to be fair, life hasn't really afforded us the opportunity to slow down and be intentional as of late. But here's the point today. I'm afraid in all that distraction, we've lost sight of what's coming. Years ago, Tony Schwartz wrote a, an article in the New York Times titled Addiction to Distraction. He talked about how the, our contemporary brains crave so much novelty and constant stimulation that we become accustomed to immediacy and nothing more. This is what he wrote. Look at this. He said, addiction is the relentless pull to a substance or an activity that becomes so compulsive it ultimately interferes with everyday life. Now, here's my guess. Here's my assumption. We've all got at least one addiction. What is it? What is it that daily interferes with your life? What is it that keeps us so caught up in the here and now that we've ceased from anticipating or expecting Christ? Look at this in verse six. Now there were six stone water jars from the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill them with water. They filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Those stone jars that Jesus used in verse 6, they were used for purification rites, right? Most jars in Jesus' day were made of clay, which meant for dirty water. But stone jars, they were used for keeping people pure. And at a Jewish wedding, you would use those jars to wash yourself on the way into the celebration and the service. And it's no mistake that Jesus would take these these pure stone jars for new wine. Because it wasn't long before he took the cup and told his disciples, this wine is now my blood, and by it you'll be made pure. And each of those stone jars had two or three measures, the scriptures tell us. Scholars say the combined total would have been somewhere between 100 and 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of wine. Fill it to the brim, Jesus said. It's a sign that tells us his intention for us to have a life of abundance, not a life of depletion. And just so we're clear, this is Jesus' will for you right now. 
Christ proved that in this miracle, right? That he cares about our lives, our here and now enough to take a horrible catastrophe and transform it for his glory. To take empty jars of disgrace and turn them into honor and praise. And it's no mistake, at least to me, that this miracle took place at a wedding. The first miracle ever performed. Forget the shame of the empty wine glasses for a minute. This was a foreshadowing of Jesus enduring a shame far greater. One that would lead him to the cross for his bride. But here's the thing. No one saw it coming. You ever wonder um, how people woke up before the invention of alarm clocks or cell phones? I found this week back in the 20th century Britain, there was someone hired in every town for the job of waking the townspeople up. This person was called a knocker-upper. Yep, it's not what you think. They were employed by local business and factories to run up and down the streets and knock up and down with their stick in their hand, rattling and banging on the windows and the doors. And unlike the snooze button, this person's job was to even pester people if they continued sleeping in bed. Look at how one historian wrote it. Paul Middleton says this. He says, life for the employed was forever balanced on a knife edge. Being late for work could mean instant dismissal and a speedy spiral for those workers and their families into poverty, homelessness, and destitution. And so at daybreak, this human alarm clock was the most important person in town. Y'all, it's time to wake up. See, that same sacrificial Christ that no one saw coming, he said that he's coming again. This time to bring his bride back home. And yet we live in a world where no one's looking for it anymore. We become so caught up in whatever we're caught up in that we've misplaced why we're here to begin with. And God's word tells us with full authority, this Christ who died for us and rose for us, he's promised an encore. We believe that, yeah. But do we really live it? You know, if I told you that I believe in the importance of eating healthy, but all you saw me doing was eating junk food, and we've talked about this before, you'd know deep in my heart I didn't really believe it. Or if I told my wife how much I loved her, but then I ignored her presence in the room day after day after day, that statement becomes meaningless. So here's the question I've been wrestling with all week, and I'll have you join in. If I believe in the one who was and is and is to come, then why do I so often live my life as though he's not? Romans 13, 11, look at this. And do this, Paul says, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Revelation 1, 7, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I get why Mary would ask Jesus to come and help in the midst of this crisis, right? She came to him with the best of intentions. And yet Jesus was about the transformation of something so much more. And when we miss that, when we look to Christ as the convenient solution to our our day's problems, but not as the savior from the problem, that's when we slip and we fall. See, notice this. John never tells us what came of the wedding party. 
We don't know their names. We don't know how their lives fared out. He doesn't care. Aside from the steward's compliments, there's no detail about who this couple is or what came of them. Now, he tells us what came of the disciples, and they all believed. How might that sign, how might the imminent return of Christ change your life? Really, if we knew Jesus was coming back right now, what would change? How would our prayer life change? What would happen to our priorities? What would suddenly matter to you that didn't before? What have you been obsessing over that suddenly would be meaningless? What about our relationships? Who would now need to hear the gospel, not when it's convenient, but right now? See, I think when we see that baseball coming, we take action, right? We're standing, our, our hands are in the air with the eyes and the prize ready to catch the ball. And when we don't, we all know what happens. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait patiently for the Lord. Be strong and courageous, wait patiently for him. Anticipate it, expect it. Live that reality, let it change you. Because the rest of life is just the details. Let me pray for us. God, we confess to you that we, we live in a world that has gone comatose. Lord, so we come to you praying for an awakening, Lord. We know that all the eyes have taken, uh, uh, the, the eyes have moved away from you and onto other things, Lord, the, the shiny objects. God, we don't have to turn on the TV or swipe the Twitter to, to know just how lost we become. But Lord, we know this morning, we confess it begins with us and our own distractions and our own anticipations. Lord, and so I just pray, Lord, that, that you would search us and know us in the areas where we have fallen asleep, where we have taken our eyes off of you. Would you awaken us? Lord, would you revive us back to you, God? Would our lives reflect that reality? God, we thank you for the promise that Jesus didn't just leave us here. Lord, but he is Emmanuel, God with us, and that he is coming again to take his bride home. But Lord, in the meantime, would you help us to wait for it, to expect it, to live it, and to see it coming. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen.